When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Even before this crisis, net debt in this country had more than doubled over the seven years of this government. And so even before the coronavirus, Australia was going to pay something like $17 billion to service that debt in this year alone. And I'm sure your listeners could. I can certainly think of better uses for $17 billion. Well, hello, good people of pods, and welcome back to Australian Politics Live. We have, uh, if you're a regular listener, you will know that we've had a short COVID-induced hiatus, sadly. We've been trying to, uh, well, we've been worried about social distancing and other things, but we think it's sort of safe enough now to try and resume the pod series. So I'm particularly delighted to be back. Of course, it's Catherine Murphy with you, and in the studio with me this week is Jim Chalmers. Labor's Shadow Treasurer. Say good day, Jim. Hi, Catherine, and hi to all your listeners as well. Okay. So Jim is with me because it's a pretty important week in terms of the economic debate around what happens after the pandemic. And Labor have put down some markers. Anthony Albanese made a speech at the beginning of this week, putting down some markers about what the post-COVID economy should look like. So we'll just start with the easy question, Jim. What does the post-COVID economy look like from Labor's perspective? Well, I think most likely we're going to see a pretty patchy recovery from this crisis. This is obviously a devastating economic crisis flowing from a you know, set of diabolical health challenges. And uh, I think most economists, certainly the Reserve Bank and others, think that it's going to have a relatively long tail. And so I think we're going to be dealing with some weakness, I think particularly in the labour market for some time now. And so we need to be conscious of that. These sorts of things, these sorts of crises come at you in waves. Your first responsibility is the immediate kind of triage of the situation, try and save as many jobs as you can. That's the phase that we're in now. But before long, in the next few months, we'll need to be thinking about things like what do we do about construction when all the current work dries up and you know that sector's doing it tough. Beyond that, we've got to we've got to care about getting businesses investing again, getting productivity going, getting employment going most importantly, and that'll mean we'll have to look at things like energy policy, research and development, commercialization, skills and training, and all of those sorts of things. What about vulnerable people in the labor market? There's obviously, you know, I would argue I don't know what you think, but you know, pandemics are kind of you know, they're kind of like a mirror to societies, right? It's like it's probably a cliche to say that, but I think it's kind of right. 
in America, obviously, we've seen, you know, the sort of uh, the inequalities of American society magnified through this crisis. Now, comparatively, Australia is a more equal society than America, so it's been a bit different here. But do you think at some level, though, this crisis has exposed the vulnerability of gig economy workers, workers on contracts, all of that sort of stuff? To what extent can governments, either Labor, Liberal, make that better? Yeah. Well, I mean, you use the word magnified. I I, I think of it along similar lines, but I think about it turbocharging some of the weaknesses that we had in our economy and in our society beforehand. People talk about this crisis as a transformative event, and in lots of ways it is, but really there are lots of things about the economy beforehand where this has just sped things up. Work was insecure before, it's more insecure now. Wages were stagnant before, I think we're up for a period of you know, more stagnation. You know, work was precarious. All of these sorts of things that we were very worried about, inequality, uh, vulnerable people being left behind, intergenerational immobility, which is the thing I kind of I'm in politics, I care most about the idea that inequality cascades through the generations. Mm. All of these problems that we had or challenges that we had have been in one way or another turbocharged by the current crisis. And so the responsibility on government is to recognise that we won't grow the economy strong enough unless we grow it inclusively enough. We need to care about the most vulnerable people in our society because if we come out of this crisis even more vulnerable even more insecure, even more precarious, even more unequal, even more immobile, then we've really failed the Australian people. This is an opportunity for us to rethink what we really care about in this country. And if we really care about those things, and I believe that we do, then we have to do something about it. And there are all kinds of opportunities for that. You know, obviously this crisis means we have to care about the kind of hot spots of insecurity in our country. We need you know, what the academics and others call the place-based approaches. You know, we need to focus in on areas like the one I represent, frankly. So that'll be part of what we need to consider. You know, clearly there are other policy levers in education, in health, in early intervention, all of these sorts of things which will matter even more after the crisis than they did before. But the the problem that any government would face if you had won the last election and this government obviously... I mean, the main problem governments right around the world will face on the other side of this crisis, assuming that there is another side, which is a whole other conversation, but anyway, is accumulated debt, right? We've had to have massive fiscal responses all around the world in order to cushion the economic shock of the pandemic, right? That's, That's obvious. So look, conventional wisdom on how do you reduce debt, you obviously, you raise revenue, you cut expenditure or you grow, you grow your way out of trouble, right, which is the government's preferred methodology. I'm just reaching for just a piece I read that was quite interesting about debt and the economist recently. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the sort of thrust of this piece was, and I'll just give you a little quote from it, they said, rich country politicians that are unwilling to shift away from spending and towards taxing are likely to choose to grow their way out of the hawk. The secret to this is ensuring that the economy's combined level of real economic growth and inflation stays handily above the interest rate the government pays on its debt. Right. That allows the, the debt-to-GDP ratio to shrink over time. Now, I hope that's clear to everyone listening what that what that sort of, well, accounting fiddle is, right, that the, the economy grows faster than the rate at which the debt grows, right? right. Like that's right. the simplest way I can put it. Mm-hmm. Now, is that the way out? Oh, I think it's a big part of the story. But I think 
in reality, if you if you care about repaying this debt, and we should over time, we shouldn't be mad about it. We shouldn't try and uh, repay it uh, overnight. But some combination of all three of those things is probably going to be required. But ideally, the first preference is to grow the economy in a meaningful way, get people into work, then they're paying taxes, then you're paying less social security, all of those sorts of things. So the first priority is growth, but inclusive growth, growth that uh, you know is sustainable, the right kind of growth. Beyond that, there will be obviously a conversation about what combination of you know, spending cuts, if they exist, tax changes, if they exist. Most countries will be trying to work out what the appropriate mix is. I think one of the unfortunate things about debt, the way that we talk about it publicly, is it's become quite a polarised thing. There is a constituency that says debt doesn't matter whatsoever, yeah. and there's a constituency that says debt is the most important thing at all times. And the reality almost as always, is somewhere in the middle. I think debt matters and that we need to repay it because even before this crisis, net debt in this country had more than doubled Mm. over the seven years of this government. And so even before the coronavirus, Australia was going to pay something like $17 billion to service that debt in this year alone. And I'm sure your listeners could. I can certainly think of better uses for $17 billion in servicing that debt. So we do need to care about it. But in crisis times, the most important thing is supporting the community, keeping as many people in work as possible, because if you don't do that, it makes the recovery that much harder. And many people remember, not very fondly, the early 90s recession. And the thing that petrifies me, and it petrifies people who are students of economic history or who live through that period, is the more people who become disconnected from the labor market in recessions, some of those people never come back, Mm. whether it's older workers or you might lose a generation of younger, younger workers. That is an absolute tragedy which needs to be avoided at all costs. That's why we support you know, a big fiscal intervention, even if that means more debt in the near term, but we also need to be conscious about how we pay that back. But without sort of being completely debt phobic, right, without thinking that that is the single most important objective, because I, I don't think that's the most single most important objective, but the bigger the debt is, the more constrained you are in your options for looking for more inclusive growth, because inclusive growth does require investments in skills, in education, in all sorts of other things, right? And I mean, obviously it gives dividends because growth is the dividend, right? But you've still got to come up with the cash up front. So I suppose that's a real, that's, I'm putting this to you because I guess that's a real labour conundrum, isn't it? So how, what are, how are you thinking about this, Jim? How are you trying to process this? Well, the way I think about it personally is it's about getting maximum bang for buck. And the way that we in the Labor Party evaluate bang for buck is probably a bit different to our opponents. And, you know, historically, when budgets have been tight, they've put a higher premium on things like, you know, a headline company rate, company tax rate cut. And we've put a higher premium on, you know, investing in human capital, whether it be schools or other you know, skills or universities or whatever it might be. So it's a question of priorities always. There are always fiscal constraints of one kind or another. And yes, they will be acute going forward. And so we need to make sure that any commitments that we make are worth it in the context of all of this debt that the government is racking up. And just one more point on growth before we move. We have, um, it sort of seems slightly discordant to me to hear the government talking about growing our way back to recovery 
given that we have been in a sustained period of low economic growth for quite some period of time. Pre-pandemic, we were in a low growth environment. That was the whole discussion around economic agencies around the world is how you reconfigure for a low growth environment. So explain to me how this... <laughs> how this works. How how do you move from a low growth environment pre-pandemic through the greatest economic shock since the Great Depression right. to a high growth environment afterwards? Now, I mean, you might say V-shaped recovery or something like that, but I, I don't get it. I, I genuinely don't get it. How does growth magically come back? Well, you think about the big deficiencies in the economy before the virus. You know, in my view, one of the things that I and you focus really heavily on is the fact that we've had all this energy policy uncertainty for so long. You know, in my job, I spend a heap of time in boardrooms. Lately, that's been in Zoom rooms with board members. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the only thing that comes up in almost every conversation I have is energy policy certainty. And if you think about it this way, Business investment was going backwards before the crisis. It was the lowest it's been since the early 90s. And businesses are reluctant to invest in a set of arrangements they don't know if they will change frequently. Yeah. And so I think if you got that better down, if you came to some kind of agreement about energy policy, then businesses would be more likely to invest. They'd get cheaper and cleaner energy, which is about their input costs. They'd be able to employ more people, expand, all of those sorts of things, assuming you can get R&D right and skills right and all of that sort of thing. So I think there is an opportunity for growth after this crisis. I'm optimistic about it, but it, it requires us to do things that were not possible before. And it also requires us to recognize that the recovery will be different in different parts of the economy and for different kinds of workers. And so we need to be ready to play a role. Ideally, the private sector would come roaring back, you know, quite soon and they'd start employing and all that sort of thing. But I think the reality is going to be a bit different for a lot of people. And so we need to be conscious of that too. Do you think genuinely that there would be a deal to do, for want of a better word, with the coalition about energy policy on the other side of this, given their record? Well, obviously it remains to be seen, but if they are serious about getting the economy going again, if they're serious about revisiting some of those things which they've, they've rejected before, remembering now as well that the last architect of an energy policy is now the treasurer, for all of these reasons, I think it would be worth seeing if, you know, if something's possible. Anybody who looks at our economy objectively and thinks about what will be the sources of growth after this crisis, you know, clearly thinks that our industry needs to have cheaper and cleaner energy we need to get that skills mix, the R&D commercialization side, all of those sorts of things. That will be key to the future. And so if the Prime Minister and the Treasurer are serious about getting things going again, particularly getting business investment, productivity, employment going again, then they'll need to look at energy again. But is there a way to sort of bridge the gap? Obviously, Labor in the past has had a higher level of ambition about abatement than the government's had. That's sort of been, you know, the, the rock on which many hopes have found it. So do you, is there a way, what are you thinking about, Jim? Is there a way to triangulate that somehow? Well, it came very close to being resolved in the last parliament. And, you know, I think Anthony Albanese, certainly Mark Butler and others have pointed out before that, you know, there were compromises that Labor was prepared to make to get some kind of certainty in the system so that business could invest with confidence and we could get this long, decade-long Barney about energy policy ended. At some future point, Labor could dial up the ambition or the coalition theoretically could dial down the ambition at some future point. But we've said before that that should have been possible in the last parliament. 
you know, I'm conscious that this is Mark's policy area and so he'll have well-considered, well-informed views about it. I guess what I'm relaying is the what business says to me amongst all of the other issues, and they are substantial now and turbocharged for all the reasons that we've already discussed, but business just cannot understand why we can't get a resolution on energy. And if you think about our challenges around growth and employment and wages, all of that, then I think any serious objective observer would say energy's got to be part of it. Okay, let's let's just think about JobKeeper for a minute because there's been lots of toing and froing this week about who's in and who's out and who should be in and whether or not you taper that payment or mm. you know basically what what sort of a repair job for want of a better term you do on the JobKeeper payment. Obviously, respond to this anyway you fancy in terms of JobKeeper, but I actually have a bigger question than what happens to JobKeeper over the next month or two. Mm-hmm. The question that sort of posed itself to me as a consequence of this crisis is whether or not we actually need a bigger conversation, whether or not we need to consider making permanent in some way, some form, some sort of insurance payment for workers who lose their jobs. You know, in an economic shock like this one where obviously, you know, the government had to shut down swathes of the economy in order to deal with a health crisis. Another one that springs to mind is a climate crisis. We saw that, uh, you know, in horrible, destructive Mm. effects of that at the start of the year, obviously. So when I think about government over the next couple of decades, I think more and more of government is going to be managing co-joined crises, as it were. I mean, not to be horrendously (laughs) downbeat, but that's just what what the future holds, right? So do you think that Labor needs to consider? Yeah. First of all, on JobKeeper, a very, very good idea, we think, being quite badly implemented. Wage subsidies are a good idea in crisis times like this, but we want to be smart about how that support is eventually withdrawn. We think it should be, you know, there should be a conversation about better targeting it, better tapering it, but we're not up for this kind of snapback that the Prime Minister's into where he pretends that everybody's going to wake up in that last Monday in September and everything all of a sudden is going to be fine and nobody needs support in the economy anymore. We talked before about how the recovery is going to be, in my view, and the Reserve Bank's view and others' view, long and patchy and some people will do it tough and be left behind for longer. And so that's really the context for you know your broader mm. question. Yeah. And I know that you know in times which have been this extreme and extraordinary, then people will think about more and more ambitious ideas for how we deal with it. Already people were talking about some of the things that you've raised in the context of, you know, technology and work yes, and the exactly. impact on automation the, on the and, workplace and yeah. automation. And I've I've co written some stuff with Mike Quigley about this a couple of years ago. So that's a concern as well. My view is I, I'm not Uh, red hot about a universal basic income. I don't like the U part of the UBI. Mm, mm. Uh, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to give money to people who don't need it. But at the same time, I do recognise that there's a problem with demand in the economy. There's a problem clearly with the unemployment benefit being so low. And so we do need to think about what the social safety net looks like. Mm. And this has been a prompt, I think, for a lot of people, even on the other side of politics, to try and rethink whether or not the social safety net is stitched together robustly enough to deal with crises like this and the long aftermath of crises like this. But is it, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but is, is it a simple matter? I mean, you could obviously just increase the new start payment and that would be, I guess, clean and working within existing systems. Or, mm-hmm. But do you think that there's, 
something more than that that needs to be thought about. Yeah. I think that needs to be thought about. And I, I think the most fruitful discussion, and I don't want to kind of preempt the work of other colleagues, but I think the most fruitful area for the country to focus on is, you know, what, if any, specific labour market programs can deal with the fact that we will have hundreds of thousands of people unemployed for longer than September, you know, the last Monday in September, yeah. which is when JobKeeper disappears under the current government's thinking. And we've seen before, like Working Nation in the early 90s was an example of a labour market program. A lot of very well-informed people talk about things like jobs guarantees. Anthony Albanese on Monday talked about, you know, a new kind of compact on skills and jobs so that we can think about, you know, making sure people don't fall through the cracks. That's the area that I think we should focus on. It's the area that Anthony and Brendan O'Connor and Tanya Plibersek and others have talked about in the past. I think that's where we should focus. I think that's more fruitful than thinking about a UBI factoring in all of the other considerations we have. Well, yeah, I mean, a UBI would in essence replace the welfare system and, you know, the downside of that is we have one of the most tightly targeted welfare systems. Absolutely. So yeah. all that, I, yeah. I, you don't, I get that. But tell me about this compact, right? Like it, it pushed me beyond the talking point. What, is yeah. that, what does that mean? Well, Monday was really a start of the conversation and Anthony's talked about it. People have talked about it in different ways, but really I think there's an appetite for some kind of maybe place-based or very specific program where we recognise that for young people in particular, they might be unemployed for longer. And so we need to think in innovative ways about how we employ those people. And again, I don't want to get ahead of things. I don't want to preempt other people's work. But of all the suggestions that we've been getting about how we deal with this, I'm just saying that I think that is that area is the most useful to focus on because from my point of view, The thing that matters most is avoiding the kind of intergenerational carnage that comes from long-term unemployment. And I see it in my electorate. As I said before, in many ways, that's why I'm here. Just just tell people about your electorate. Neither of us us should assume that. Sure, of course. So I'm from a place called Logan City, and it has its share of challenges. But the main challenge, in my view, and more or less the reason why I'm involved in politics is because I think... A first world, first rate, wealthy country like ours shouldn't have disadvantage cascade through the generations. I think that is a tragedy. And what keeps me up at night about this crisis is the idea of whether it's 55-year-old workers who may never find their way back in the workforce or young workers who are detached for long enough that it becomes very hard for them to get back into the labour market. The idea that what happens now could create intergenerational problems in specific areas like Logan City, that gets me really fired up. That's what we're trying to avoid. People say, what are we trying to avoid here? We're trying to avoid job losses. We're trying to avoid anemic growth and all those sorts of things. But sitting above all of that is the idea that a country as good as ours, as wealthy as ours, as intelligent as ours, can do better than consign groups of people concentrated in geographic areas Mm -hmm. to disadvantage that doesn't just impact them, but impacts their kids and their grandkids and generations after that. That's what we're trying to avoid. Mm. And I mean, Paul, we could could go on for about an hour about this stuff, seriously. And I mean, you could sort of apply the same logic because we were talking about energy and climate a minute ago. You know, one of the the difficulties about sort of getting people to to vote for this transition is is the job losses is the 
is the structural adjustment associated with it, right? Like if you're talking about compacts mm. for intergenerational disadvantage, you could also start thinking about compacts for workers in carbon-intensive industries right. through periods of structural adjustments. It's kind of like it's a logic you can apply in different circumstances. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, we are. But, but also, like it, we've shown that we can think in the near term. Mm. Politics is quite good at dealing with the challenge that's four right or eight weeks us. away. Mm. Yeah, we can, we can do that. Mm. But collectively, we've been hopeless at making the right long-term decisions, and that's because politics isn't good at delayed gratification yeah. and you know there's a whole generation even in this building there is and probably on the other side I don't know but certainly on our side there's a lot of the newer MPs I'm sort of in political middle age now so <laughs> perhaps <laughs> after me who think that the main problem with our politics is we don't think long term enough yeah. we don't delay gratification and so hopefully this crisis doesn't just teach us how to make good decisions good triage decisions in the near term, but good long-term decisions as well. Oh, it's, a, it's a very nice thought. That is a very nice thought if somehow we could reset that whole process. So tell me about, because we're sort of in, you know, Labor's policymaking territory for this term and obviously you can't front-run front processes that are currently in train and share with me decisions that haven't been made. But in general terms, Anthony Albanese sent a fairly clear signal, well, not only is the sort of program of the last election sort of set aside and something new will be built in its place, but that in general terms we will see less taxing and spending that we saw in the last platform. Is that broadly right? And so then if it's less taxing and spending, what does it look like? We've just talked about a compact, you know, for workers in disadvantaged areas, for example. What, what does it look like beyond that in your portfolio? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, no political party ever has taken an identical agenda to one election that they took to the one before. So in some respects, it's kind of unremarkable that Anthony would give that, rightly give that direction. We need to come up with a set of policies which suit the times and factor in this extraordinary circuit breaker in the economy that we're living through at the moment. I think the point that he is making is let's get good at prioritising what we care most about. And it won't actually be possible to undo all of the damage of the last seven years. By then, it'll be eight or nine years by the time we get to the election. We can't undo that all that damage overnight. We need to prioritise. We need to sequence. We need to work out what we care most about and what's most urgent. And I think that's how I see the, the situation that you've just described, because whatever program we take to the next election, it needs to be focused and clear enough that people can understand it. It needs to be a story that where people see themselves as part of that story. And so for all of those reasons, we probably need to be focused on, on fewer but more impactful offerings. We're just picking up on that point uh, briefly. It's sort of funny to think about um, 2007. And Jim's smiling at me because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming back to me, <laughs> Yes, because we, we were yeah. both around that period. In, uh, yes, and, uh, anyway, but it, it's sort of striking, really, when you look back at 2007, which was an election Labor won from opposition, obviously. I mean, how else do you win elections? But you know what I mean. You, you made the case for a change of government in uh, at the end of four coalition terms, right? But looking back then, how, how sort of... Um, spare that offering was, right? You know, it was sort of like 
you know, sign Kyoto and the education revolution and, you know, mm. these various things, right? Obviously, there was sort of policy sitting underneath those things, but it, it wasn't massively detailed. So is that the blueprint for mm. success? Is well, 2007 the blueprint? I don't know. What is I think it? partly, but, but mostly because... I agree with what you're saying, but that doesn't mean that the policy agenda wasn't ambitious. No, no, no. You know, no, We no, were no. talking yeah, about, sure. you know, we wanted to make workplaces fairer again. We wanted to make schools and education the kind of, you know, engine room of growth and, you know, and we wanted to deal with climate change. Mm. I mean, that was the reason why I, I have gone back and really refreshed myself about that period, which was a... 2007 was an extraordinary, extraordinarily successful period because we did come up with an agenda which was clear, but it was also ambitious. Mm. And that's why I don't like, you know, from time to time people talk about small targets, big targets, whatever. What matters is the level of ambition for yeah. the country yeah, yeah. in your policies, yeah. not the number of policies. Yeah, 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 I agree. Um, I, if neither one of us have conveyed that point clearly, that's that's really what I meant. It's sort of like... I don't know. It's conveying that level of ambition without tying yourself up in, you know, 38 pages of footnotes or what I, I don't know. I mean, look, I'm a policy person. I'm I will mourn the fact that one of the casualties of the last election cycle is probably, you know, fleshed out policy agendas for several years, right? Like I'm probably one of the few people in the country who will actually mourn that. But anyway, it's you've you've got a thought in your mind. I'll just ask you one more question from sort of that period. And obviously you were a staffer before you were in public office yourself and you were in the engine room during the global financial crisis working for Wayne Swan and around Kevin Rudd, which uh, there would be several books in, I'm sure. But is it weird for you? having literally sat right in the engine room of what was, for the GFC, the biggest economic shock since the Great Depression, right? right? Is it strange for you to be standing outside that process, not in government, distance from it, working out, you know, which how to, how to sort of plot these pathways, mm. you know, sort of being, being oppositionist but not too much, mm. you know, all those judgments that you're making, right? Is it weird to be outside it? Yeah, weird's, weird's one word for it, but, I mean, it's frustrating. And over the years, a lot of people have said to me, you know, was it difficult moving from being a, a senior advisor to being a, a politician? And my answer to that is no, the difficulty has been going from government to opposition. And people will literally stop us in the street. I'm sure I'm not the only one on the Labor side that this happens to. And they say, geez, you must be pleased you lost that election given how things mm. turn out. But are we you are, pleased? No, we are a funny <laughs> lot. Uh, and we are in this game to make a difference, to be influential, to make the big decisions. Uh, so it's, it's frustrating watching it. And particularly when, you know, the government might be taking a step that we welcome and you can see that they could do it better, more effectively, more value for money, more impact, more jobs saved. That's when it's frustrating. And particularly when you think that perhaps the government might not be taking up a good idea because we've proposed it. Mm. And, and so those times become, you know, incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And difficult was it to see the government turn on the head of a dime on stimulus? I mean, I just- No, good thing. No, that's a good yeah. thing, genuinely. You didn't um, throw any no, untethered objects no. in your home? I mean, I, I thought Anthony Albanese put it really well in his vision statement when he said, you know, we kept a straight face when they talked about the importance of stimulus and government intervention. We think it's important they learn that lesson. And having learned the lesson of 2009, they now need to learn the lesson of 2014, which is don't have a big austerity budget 
that ruins you know the recovery as it's as it's gathering pace don't ask the most vulnerable people to pay back all of this debt that's accumulating so they need to learn that they need to learn that lesson too. And uh, Josh Frydenberg, your opposite number, you've got a sort of weird kind of big dog, little dog thing going on. Who's <laughs> Just, who, which one's well, which? Well, it switches. It's sort of it's, <laughs> it's hard to keep up with who's big dog and little dog. But anyway, you, you don't seem to have uh, – you obviously have an adversarial relationship, but it doesn't seem to be a rancorous one. No, that's, that's a good way of describing so it. So how's he been in this crisis? Has he sought – you know, obviously – well, of course, tell me all the tales – but – within the bounds of what's appropriate. Sure. Has he sought your, you know, have you been a touchstone at all or is I, it I don't more think transactional? It, I don't want to be flippant about this because I, I do think he's as you described it. I, I think he's um, um, not a great treasurer, but I don't think he's a bad person. And he would never describe me as uh, touchstone <laughs> or something well, like that. No, but it's a stupid word. No, sure, I'm, I'm trying sure. to come up with the word. I what know. is the word that I'm looking for? We, we've spoken, and I'm I'm grateful for the fact that there have been occasions where he's he's called me at night in the difficult part of this crisis. He's called, and we've had a good we've had a really good discussion, actually, and not a not a trivial one, and not a ticker box one. And I'm I'm grateful for that. My, uh, you know, my little daughter had to go to hospital a couple of weeks ago, and he was the first to call me about it. Uh, I texted him when we thought that he might have the have the Ronas, as the young people say. And um, we had a text exchange then, even though we'd had a difficult day in the parliament, mm-hmm. we had a friendly text exchange later. So I think people like to hear about that sort mm-hmm. of thing, mm-hmm. because he is. I will do anything to replace him as the treasurer of this country, almost anything. Um, but it doesn't mean I think necessarily he's a bad person. Mm. But it has again, without trading confidences, I get the vibe of the thing because I, you know, obviously know both of you very well, so I can imagine how those that goes down. But is it not specifics? Is he looking for a, a, advice? Is he talking through ideas? What's he doing? Oh, he wouldn't see it as looking for for advice. And I do, I do genuinely want to be careful about characterising something without him having the opportunity to characterise it. But there have been a couple of occasions where we've had a proper conversation. It's more likely to be a good conversation if nobody else is involved in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and, but, he, I mean, I've, as I said, I've been grateful for that. Yeah, all right. Understand and respect well. Thank you very much for coming on, Jim. Appreciate it. Thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who is the executive producer of this show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard, who has cut the show this week. Uh, like I say, we're going to try and get back into the the uh, corona or post-corona or mid-corona or wherever we are groove with this show. We will try and bring it back more frequently. I'm not sure if we can do it every single week, but we will do our best. Until I'm with you again, take care. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.